Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just wanna make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we are headed as a church. Once again, thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. I was in about the ninth or 10th grade the first time that I remember that I began to contemplate kind of serious, moral, ethical, life and death type questions. I'm sure there were times leading up to that, but, but distinctly, I first have a memory of thinking about weightier things in about the ninth or 10th grade. And one of the things that kind of triggered this kind of ethical pursuit as I began to think about these things was a book that I was asked to read in high school. It was a book that I'm sure many of you were asked to read in school. It's a classic. It has become a part of the study of American literature, written by a man named John Steinbeck, and the book is called Of Mice and Men. How many of you had to read that book when you were in school, right? A lot of us had to read Of Mice and Men. That book has uh, been studied in classrooms all across our country. The book has become a classic, so millions and millions and millions of copies, and there's a lot of debate about some of the things in the book, but I remember it was one of those first times when I read that book that I began to think about some deeper issues in life, and as I read that book, I studied the book. Some of the things you may not know about the book of Mice and Men, written by Steinbeck, but that was not his original title. The book of Mice and Men, when he originally wrote it, the title that Steinbeck gave it was Something That Happened. That was the title of Of Mice and Men. And one day Steinbeck was reviewing his work and he was reading some poetry. And he came across a poem that was written in the 1700s by a man named Robert Burns. And it was a line in this poem by Robert Burns that shaped the title for the book of Mice and Men. Now, you may have never heard of the poem by Robert Burns. You may have never read the poem, but I promise you, you've more than likely heard the line that was used out of that poem to title this book. Here's the famous line from the poem by Robert Burns. The best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. Anybody heard that before? Yep, that's what I thought. A lot of people heard that before. Usually when something doesn't go the way we thought it was going to go, that's when we, that, that phrase has become a quoted statement and a part of American folklore. We, we use that verb when something's not going right. Well, hey, the best, played, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. What that statement really means is that as human beings, no matter how hard we try to establish a plan, our plans are constantly changing. Think about the plans you had for your life. Most of us, when we were younger, we had moments where we thought about where life was going to take us, what we were going to do, where we were going to live, all these plans. Well, if you're going to be totally honest this morning as you sit here, I think all of us would say 
the plan turned out a little differently maybe than we thought it was going to turn out. Whether it's the career that you thought you were going to pursue or the city where you thought you would live or the places that you would visit or the things that you would accomplish, most of us are sitting here today realizing at least some aspects of our plan didn't turn out exactly the way we thought it was going to turn out. To give you an example from my own life, I grew up in a small town in North Alabama called Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Most of you probably never heard of or never been to Muscle Shoals, Alabama. But I can tell you this about growing up in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. When you grow up in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, Las Vegas is not on your radar. When I was a kid, I never thought about Las Vegas. Now, I, and you've heard me say this before, but, but where I'm from in Alabama, people don't go to Las Vegas, and if they do, they don't tell anybody, right? <laughs> where I'm from, they don't think Las Vegas is hell, but they think you can smell it from here. We're real close. We're, we're somewhere close to the border. Uh, so growing up in Alabama in a small town, I'm telling you, there was never a part of my plan that ever dreamed about life. The only thing I knew about Las Vegas, to be honest with you, was every once in a while on The Price is Right, Bob Barker would give somebody a free trip to Las Vegas. That's, that's the only thing I knew about Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only that, I had no dream or desire of being a pastor or preaching and being involved in pastoral ministry in a church. When I went to college, uh, I became a Christian as a freshman in college. But when I went to college and I registered for college, I, you know, you declare your major. I declared my major to be what's called, back then was called RTF. Say, so what does that stand for? It stood for radio, television, and film. Because I was working full-time as an on-air radio personality, and I thought that's where I was going to go with my career. I thought I'd spend the rest of my life doing on-air radio work. I enjoyed listening to myself talk, apparently. And so on-air radio was something that I I enjoyed, and I thought that's what I was going to do with my life. And when I was in college, I came to know Christ, and then after coming to know Christ, God began to stir my heart for ministry. God called me to preach. God called me to pastor. But even then, I never dreamed about Las Vegas. I thought, for well, listen, if I didn't go to Las Vegas when I wasn't a pastor, I'm sure not going to go to Las Vegas now that I am a pastor. Furthest thing, when you said Las Vegas, you might as well have said the moon from my experience. And yet... God's plan, ultimately, was to call me to this city with my family to be involved in starting this church. And here's what's ironic. Now, I've lived in Las Vegas, Nevada longer than I lived in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. <laughs> this is now our home. It's where our kids have been raised. This is a major part of my life. So it wasn't a part of my plan originally, but it was a part of God's plan. And here's what I want you to know for the follower of Jesus. For the follower of Jesus today... When God changes the plan, here's what you need to know. It's always for our good and His glory. You can trust Him with the plan. But the bottom line is, our human experience involves a lot of change. You may not like change. Change may not be something you're comfortable with. But human experience brings about a lot of change. Say, so why am I saying that? Here's why I'm saying that. One of the greatest differences between us and God is that although our lives are full of change, get this, He never changes. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let me show it to you in the Bible. The psalmist talks about it in Psalm 102. Listen to what he says. 
in verse 25. He said, of old, you, God, founded the earth and the heavens. Now, here when God, when the Bible uses the word heavens, it means different things in different places in the Bible. But here, it's talking about everything that's not the earth. The earth and then the heavens, which means our atmosphere, the sky, but also the stars, the moon, the galaxy, but then the galaxies beyond our galaxy. The psalmist is declaring of God, God, you created, you founded the earth, but not only the earth, you founded all of the universe. All of it is the work of your hands and look what he goes on to say even they will perish but you endure you know what he's doing he's contrasting the unchanging nature of god with the changing nature of the universe and i don't know about you but i woke up today hoping the universe is pretty stable right I mean, when I woke up today, I expected the sun to be in its place doing its job. Amen? I mean, we all expected the sun to be in the sky and to be shining. As a matter of fact, most of the calendar that we use today is based on the constant of the sun. The sun being where it's supposed to be, doing what it's supposed to be doing, is how we base all of our time in, in past and present and future. We do it around the, the, the sun. That's how we do our calendar system. Not only that, scientists tell us about the sun that the sun itself has changed very minimally, and, and they scientists expect the sun to remain stable for the next five billion years. And that's a pretty long period of time, amen? Five scientists expect, based on the stability and constancy of the sun today, that it's going to remain stable for the next five billion years and yet go back to the psalm look what it says all of them wear out like a garment like clothing you change you will change them and they will be changed but you are the what here's what the psalmist is doing in contrast in comparison to the changing nature of the universe and let's just be honest it ain't changing that much i mean the sun is expected to do its job for the next five billion years but the psalmist said in comparison to the changing nature of the universe he's contrasting that with the unchanging nature of our god our god never changes he says you are the what the word same in Hebrew is literally the third person pronoun. It's the word he. He's saying, you are he. The sun, the universe, the galaxies. Man, that's changing like we change clothes every day in comparison to the reality that you are he. Meaning this, he is today the same he that he was yesterday and the same he that he's going to always be. God is never changing. Just in case we didn't understand the illustration of the psalmist, God speaks about this character himself. In Malachi chapter 3, listen to what God says about himself. God says, for I the Lord 
do not what? Say it out loud. Not a lot of ambiguity in this statement, right? Pretty clear, pretty definitive. God said, I, the Lord, do not change. This word Lord here, it's in all caps because in most English translations, that's the way you find it. And the English translators put this in all caps because there are two words in the Hebrew language that we translate with the word Lord. One of them is the word Adonai. When you see that word in the Old Testament, it's usually L and then lowercase O-R-D, the Lord. But this word Lord is the specific name of God. It's the proper name of God. It's the Hebrew word Yahweh. The word Yahweh comes from a root verb in Hebrew that means to be. It's the state of being verb, meaning God saying his name is to be, is, I am, right? That's what he said to Moses. When Moses met God in the wilderness in the book of Genesis, Moses meets God in a burning bush. And God says to Moses, Moses, I want you to go back to the nation of Egypt. I want you to lead my people out of bondage. And Moses said, well, if I go back and tell them that God sent me, what God am I supposed to tell them sent me? And God said, here's who you tell them sent you. You tell them my name is what? I am. You know what that means? He am. Now, that may not be the best English, but it's incredible theology. He am today, the same as he was yesterday. And he am tomorrow, the same as he am last week. And he am next month, the same as he am last month. How do we know that? Because he always am. I don't think you're getting it. Here's why this is good news. Let me tell you why this is good news. How many of you today showed up here needing the grace of God? Let me see your hand. You need a fresh outpouring of God's grace in your life. Oh, I got good news for you. You showed up on a good day. Why? Because he am. Here's what that means. He's got as much grace today as he's ever had, and he's got as much grace today as he ever will have. How do you know that? Because he never changes. He just always am. You didn't show up on a Sunday when he was running low. You didn't show up on a Sunday when his fuel tank was getting close to empty. He always am. If you need God's grace today, he has an abundant supply for you. How do I know that? Because he am. How many of you showed up today and what you need is the provision of God? Maybe it's physical. You need God's healing. You, 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 maybe it's financial. You need provision. Maybe it's spiritual or emotional or mental. You need God. You need Jehovah Jireh, which means literally the Lord will provide. That's what, look, I got good news for you today. You showed up on the best of Sundays. Let me tell you why. He am. He has as much provision today as he will ever have, and he has as much provision today as he will ever have, or as he's ever had. How do I know that? Because he is unchanging. And here's what that means for you and me. We can trust him. He never takes a day off. He never goes away for the weekend. He's never having a bad afternoon. He never needs to take a nap. He just am unchanging 
It means that God never changes his mind and he never changes his plan. For the last couple of weeks here at Hope, we've been walking through a letter Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus in the first century. If you have your Bible, I want you to open it to Ephesians chapter 3. And Paul is writing in this letter, we, we've titled this series that we're studying called Spiritual Misfits. It's God's unexpected plan to change the world, that God was bringing a people to himself, and through his people, God would literally turn the world upside down. We're continuing to, to understand this plan as we get to Ephesians chapter 3. And I want us to read together. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading in verse number 1. I'm going to read all the way down to verse 13. I'm going to give you some truths out of these verses this morning. But, but I want you to know as you read them, you're going to get to the end of these verses I'm about to read. You're going to say, I thank the Lord that I don't have to teach those verses this morning. Because these verses are a little bit complicated. And here's why. These verses, starting in verse 1 all the way to verse 13, are really a parenthetical expression in the middle of what Paul was saying. So Paul basically calls a little time out, gives us some instruction under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And then in verse 14, he picks back up the thought. But in this parenthetical expression, if you don't grab that, you can get a little bit lost. Let me read it to you, and I'll show you what I mean. Verse 1, for this reason... I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed, now here he starts the parenthetical expression, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I write before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. To be specific, thank you, Paul. We appreciate you getting to this part. Be specific, please. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulation on your behalf, for they are for your glory. Amen? All right, you got all that. We'll just leave right now. Amen? You know exactly what that's talking about, right? Listen, we, our team, we spent a lot of time meditating on and reading and rereading these verses over and over and over again to gain clarity from the Holy Spirit about exactly what he was trying to say. And I believe convincingly that what he's talking about here is God's plan. And I want to give you four statements about God's plan to kind of give you some handles for this passage of Scripture. Here's number one. God's plan is eternal. Say that out loud. God's plan is eternal. I want you to look at the person sitting next to you and tell them, God's plan is eternal. 
You say, where do you see that in these verses? Well, look back at verse number 11. In verse 11, Paul writes and he says this, everything that he's talking about in this chapter, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose. The word eternal is a word. We, we know that word. We have a little familiarity with that word. But the word eternal is interesting in the Greek language because it's a reference to time, but it's time with no reference to beginning or ending. Meaning this, it's time without a beginning and time without an ending. Now, we can a little bit wrap our minds around time with no ending, but when you start talking about time with no beginning, that's when we all begin to stumble and struggle just a little bit to wrap our heads around that. It can give you somewhat of a headache if you spend too much time thinking about eternity. But he's talking here about the eternal purpose. The word purpose is a word that means design or plan. It's that which is planned in advance. So what Paul is writing about here is that God's plan is a plan that has existed outside of the parameters of time, meaning God's plan, the plan that he's writing to us about is eternal. Here's what that means. God is not figuring things out as he goes along. Before time ever ticked its first second off the clock, there was a plan established in the mind and heart of God. From eternity past, he sought out to accomplish his plan, and because he's God, he will accomplish his plan, and no one or no thing will stop him or change his plan. How do you know? that because he am he's God you say okay God's plans eternal what's the plan what is God's plan well I want to give you a summary statement that really takes everything Paul's saying in this chapter in this really entire letter and gives it to you in a summary Here, here's God's eternal plan before the world began God's plan was to redeem a people to himself from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation who would for eternity enjoy a loving relationship with him and with each other. That's God's eternal plan. And listen, he's doing all of this for his glory. God's plan is to redeem a people to himself, to bring to himself a people out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation that will be in a love relationship with him. And because of our relationship with him, we'll have a relationship with each other. And for all eternity, we will enjoy our love relationship with God and with each other. You say, how do you know that's the plan? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me give you three reasons why I know that's the plan. The first one is because that's what Paul told us when he opened this letter. Go back to chapter 1. Flip back one page in your Bible. Chapter 1, Paul opens this letter by telling us about God's eternal plan. Look at it in verse 4. He writes and he says, Just as he... God chose us 
followers of Jesus, Christians, the beloved, just as he chose us in him. You ready for this next phrase? Before the what? Foundation of what? Remember that little phrase at the beginning of the Bible? Genesis 1, 1. What does it say? In the what? In the beginning. Now, 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 in the beginning, he's talking about a pretty important beginning, right? It's the beginning of beginnings. Every beginning that's ever begun began after this beginning, right? In the beginning. The, the beginning. In the beginning, God did what? He created the... So, when the beginning began, he already am. But when the beginning began, he that am spoke everything we can see, taste, touch, feel, or smell into existence. That's called the foundation of the world. Paul says, before that, before what? Before in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. You mean there's a before that? Yes. What do we know about before that? Here's all I know. He am. Paul says, before the beginning began, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Here's what that means. Before time began, God set his heart on you and God set his heart on me. That ought to make somebody say, wow. You want to talk about purpose, meaning, value, significance. Listen, God, before time Set his heart on. You say, uh, can you explain that? Can you reconcile that? Listen, I'm just reading it. I can't do any of that. Let's look what he goes on to say. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. Before the foundation of the world, he set a society, he says, to be in his family, to be loved by him. According to the kind intention of his will. Why? To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in what? The beloved, what? The family. It's always been God's plan to redeem a people to himself that would be in a love relationship with him and a love relationship with each other. Paul tells us when he began the letter. But it goes back even further than that. The Bible tells us this. At the very beginning of the story of the Bible. You know what happened in the garden. God, Genesis 1, God creates everything. Genesis 2 places Adam and Eve in the garden. Genesis 2 and 3, Adam and Eve sin against God. They rebel against God. It breaks and severs the relationship that they had with God. From Genesis chapter 3 all the way to Genesis chapter 11, literally the world is coming, the world is falling apart Mass rebellion against God, destruction, devastation. You get to Genesis chapter 12. God shows up again on the scene in the midst of all this chaos and destruction and devastation. And chapter 12 of the book of Genesis begins with this word, now. 
Meaning this, now at this time, God comes back on the scene and God chooses a man named Abraham. Was it because Abraham was worthy? No. Was it because Abraham deserved it? No. God in eternity past had set his heart on Abraham. And God chose Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm going to begin a covenant relationship with you. But listen, it was never just about Abraham. Look at verse 3 of Genesis chapter 12. God said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to do this so that in you all the what? What's this word? Families. It's a Hebrew word that means families, peoples, nations. Abraham, I'm choosing you. I'm beginning a covenant relationship with you so that Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Meaning this, it was never just about Abraham. It was never just about Abraham's people. It was always God's design, always God's plan to redeem a people to himself out of all the nations of the earth. Well, not only do we know this because Paul told us at the beginning of the letter, and not only do we know this because God tells us this at the beginning of the story in Genesis, but we know this because we've already seen the end of God's plan. You say, well, well, what do you mean? Remember I told you earlier that God exists outside the parameters of time? What does that mean? I mean, it sounds like, oh, wow, that's deep. That's uh, God exists outside. But, but what does that really mean? Well, to try to help us grasp this today, I want to kind of take us back a little bit um, to the days when we used to go to the movies and what they would play was a movie on a film strip, right? Some of you are old enough to remember that. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about at all because you go and it's a digital. They press a button, it plays. They press a button, it stops. But in the old days, you would go to the movies and they had what was called a film strip that was on a reel. And they would take that film strip, they would put it on the reel, and as it rolled through the projector, each scene of the movie would be played out on the screen. And you knew the movie was over, right? When it got to the end, you heard that, right? The reel, the strip came off the end of the reel and the movie was over. Some of you only know that noise because it's an app on Instagram that you can, it's, a, it's a, an effect that you can throw on Instagram with something that you're posting. But they, they, they used to have a film strip. You say, why is that important? Because here's what happened. The principle of the film strip was the way they would do the movie is they would lay it out scene by scene by scene, action by action, word by word, phrase by phrase. And every scene in that movie was on the film strip so that you could literally roll the film strip out. And if you wanted to, you could stand right here and look at scene one. And you could run over here and see, see, see scene grand finale all at the same time. Why? Because you weren't in the movie. You were existing outside of the framework of the movie. You can see the beginning of the movie, the end of the movie, the middle of the... You can look in the end. Now, when the film strip played out, it all seamlessly wove together. You didn't see it scene by scene. You just saw it flesh out in time on the screen as this movie that you were watching. But you could literally take that film strip, lay it out, see any scene at any given time. God exists outside the parameters of time. Which means he sees Genesis 1-1 and Revelation 21-1 all at the same time time 
He can see the beginning of time. He can see the end of time. He can see what's happening today. He can see what's happening tomorrow. He can see it all at the same time because God exists outside of the parameters of time. You say, I don't know if I believe that. Let me prove it to you. There's a point in the Bible where God said to a man named John, John, I want to let you see things the way I see things. I'm going to give you the ability for a moment to see what is already a reality in the future at the end of time. And John, when you see it, I want you to write it down. I don't know about you, but I'm sure if it had been me, he had my full and undivided attention, right? So John leans in. God lets John see a scene from the end of time that is already fixed in his eternal plan. Let me read it to you. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. John said, after these things I looked and behold. As John said, let me, let, me, let me tell you what I saw. Behold, a great multitude which no one can count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. What were they doing? They were standing. Standing where? Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. How do we know this is God's plan? Here's how we know. He's already shown us a scene at the end. And at the end, every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation have been brought into relationship with Jesus Christ, brought into relationship with God through Christ, and we are together for all eternity in heaven, enjoying a love relationship with Him and enjoying a fellowship love relationship with each other. God's plan is eternal. If you got that, say amen. Okay. You're going to have to listen much quicker because I got three more of these and we got to go faster, all right? That one, you, you listen way too slowly. So here's, here's three more, all right? We're going to go quicker on these. Number two, not only is God's plan eternal, God's plan is mysterious. It's mysterious. Three times in these verses, Paul talks about the mystery of God's plan. Much of verses 3 through 10 is unpacking the mystery. But what we got to understand is the word Paul is using here for mystery, it's not the same way that we would use the word mystery today. When we use the word mystery, we talk about a puzzle to be solved or a hidden truth to be discovered. But Paul is using the word here to describe something that was previously hidden, but now has been revealed. Let me read it to you the way that um, James Montgomery Boyce describes it. He says, what is a mystery? In contemporary English, it is something unknown. But this is not the meaning mystery had in Paul's day. In Greek, the word mysteron, which is the word we get mystery from, the word mysteron refers to something known only to the initiated. 
When the apostle used the word, it was with similar meaning. He used it to describe something that was unknown before the coming of Christ, but is now fully revealed. What is the mystery? Here it is. Quite clearly, this is where Paul said to be specific, that the Gentiles should be made partakers along with the Jews of God's great blessings in the church. If we're not careful, here's what happens. In Christianity, we often rewrite Christian history. And here's what I mean by that. We tell Christian history as if the gospel only came to the Gentiles because the Jews in the Old Testament rejected the gospel. And because the Jews rejected the gospel, then God changed his mind, opened the door, decided I'm going to bring all the Gentiles in as well. But that's not the story of the Bible. The beauty of the Christian church is that we as God's people have always been a part of God's plan. It was never just about the Jewish people. The Jewish people were God's chosen people in the Old Testament, but God wanted to use them like he said to Abraham as a vehicle to make himself known to the peoples of the earth. In the New Testament, the equivalent of that is the New Testament church. Today, we are the plan of God being fulfilled. The mystery that Paul's talking about is that it has always been God's plan to redeem a people to himself from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Look at verse 10. That's why Paul says, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. Here's what that means. When we now look at the church, we see a visible representation of what has always been the plan of God. The word manifold is a word in the Greek language that means multifaceted or multicolored. It's the word that would be used to describe Joseph's coat in the Old Testament, the coat of many colors. What Paul is writing here to say is when we look at the church, we see a visible expression of the eternal plan of God, which is every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. When you look at the church, we see Jew and Gentile. We see black and white. We see rich and pure. We see uh, poor. We see educated and we see uneducated. Uh, we have people from many different colors and cultures all been made one family in Christ. Tony Morita, in his book about this particular passage of Scripture, listen to what he said. He said, his grace and glory are displayed in a diverse people, a many-colored fellowship, a multicultural and multi-ethnic fellowship who have been called, redeemed, forgiven, made alive, and united in Christ. You know, one of my favorite parts of Hope Church is, one of my favorite parts of this church, it's unlike most churches I've ever been a part of, one of my favorite parts of this church is that we are a multi-ethnic church fellowship. You know what I love about Hope Church? When you look at Hope Church, you get to see a picture of what the end scene is going to look like. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but did you know we did a survey? We have 54 different languages spoken in our fellowship that we know of. 54 different languages, multi-ethnic, multi-generational. We come from many different walks of life, many different backgrounds, but we are one family in Christ. How do you explain that? How does that happen? Well, it doesn't happen because it was our plan. Listen, when we moved out here to start this church, there were three of us that came together. Two white guys from Alabama and one white guy from Tennessee. 
Now, let me just be real honest. Alabama and Tennessee historically are not known for their multi-ethnic passion, right? So, it's not the heritage. How do you explain two white guys from Alabama, a white guy from Tennessee, and of all places, Las Vegas, Nevada, and now a fellowship with 54 languages from cultures and colors all over the world? There's only one explanation for that. It's always been the plan of God. It was the plan of God in eternity past. And as we gather today, Sunday after Sunday, we get a visible demonstration of what was a mystery at one point, but is now fully real that Christ is drawing to himself a people that will spend eternity together with him. Amen? Number three, God's plan is completed in Christ. We talked a lot about this the last couple of weeks. I won't spend much time here, but look back at verse number 11. Paul says, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's what that means. Everything that needed to happen to accomplish the plan was finished in Christ. It's why Jesus said on the cross, what was the last thing he cried out? It is what? Finished. What was finished? Everything that needed to be done to make us right with God. You see, because of Jesus, oh, this is such good news. Listen, because of Jesus, there's not anything you or I have to do today to earn our way into God's family. There's not one thing you have to do today to earn your way into God's acceptance or God's grace. There's not one thing you have to do to earn your way. Listen, there's not anything we could do to do any of those things. But Jesus did for us what we couldn't do on our own. I told you a minute ago that God exists outside the parameters of time. That's true. But did you know at a point in time? God came and entered the time that he created. He became a part of the movie. He entered the film strip. When did that happen? In the person of Jesus, God clothed himself in humanity, and he was born into this world. Jesus lived out in time and history a sinless life. Why? So that he was qualified as a Savior and a Messiah. He offered that sinless body on a cross. Jesus took all of your sin and all of my sin, all of your unrighteousness and all of my unrighteousness, righteousness he took it on himself and on the cross Jesus died for us but he didn't stay dead he rose again as a testimony that God had accepted his sacrifice for our sin then guess what he did he ascended he he left our time and space he ascended back into eternity he's now seated at the right hand of the father one day he's coming again and we'll see that final scene played out when every tribe tongue people nation will be around the throne saying salvation to our God because of Jesus There's nothing you have to do to earn your way into God's plan. All we have to do is receive by faith what Jesus has already done. You see, that's the good news of the gospel. Some Christians have this idea that the gospel, that's the ABCs of the Christian life. No, 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 no. The gospel is the whole alphabet of the Christian life. It's who I am. It's who I will be. Everything we are, everything we ever will be is rooted and grounded in the finished work of Jesus on the cross that he fleshed out in time and space for all to see. And when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, guess what? By grace, we are given a love relationship with God, and we are brought into a fellowship relationship with each other as his family. And when he comes again... 
we spend eternity with him forever and ever and ever. Last thing, and I'm done. God's plan is accomplished through his church. Go back to verse number 10 one last time. So that, he says, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the, what? Say it out loud. Church. Here's what this means. If you've been to church before, you've heard them talk about mission work, right? And the way churches talk about mission work, we talk about missions like it's this little slice of what we do over here on the side. We got the church, and we have preaching, and we have singing, we have small groups, and we have, you know, ministries, and we care for one another, and we meet each other's needs, and we're growing together. That's the church. Oh, oh, yeah, we got this other little thing we do over here. It's called missions. Here's what Paul's saying. The whole reason we exist is for the mission. Missions is not a little slice of what we do. The mission is why we exist. What is the mission? God redeeming to himself a people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation who will be in a love relationship with him and enjoy fellowship with each other for all eternity. And here's what's unbelievable. God in his grace has invited you and I to now share in this mission. We get to tell people that Jesus came. We get to tell people that because of Jesus, they can be made right with God. They don't have to do anything to earn it. It's Jesus. We get to tell people in Las Vegas. We get to tell people in the western United States. We get to tell people all over the world. Why are we sending out teams all over the world? Let me tell you why. Because that's the plan. It's always been the plan. In eternity past, God sovereignly established a plan that every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, and today we get to be the living embodiment of fleshing that out. That's what Paul's talking about. Ephesians chapter 3. Let's pray together. Father, Would you take your word and speak by the power of your Holy Spirit as only you can? Father, I pray right now to believers and unbelievers alike that your Holy Spirit would have your way and speak and bring application, conviction, clarity. As you sit quietly just pondering what God's speaking into your life today. Listen, this isn't a time to slip out early. We're about to be done here in just a moment. But I want you to really just contemplate what you've heard from God today. Maybe you're here and you're already a Christian. Here's the question. If you're already a Christian, here's what I want you to wrestle with today. Are you leveraging your life for the sake of God's eternal plan? You say, I'm not, a, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a missionary. What are you talking about? No. You see, God's given you the job he's given you. He's given you the gifts he's given you. He's given you the home, the family, whatever. He, he, God's given that to you so that you can leverage that for the sake of his eternal plan. You're to live your life on mission. 
And here's the problem for a lot of Christians. Not only are they not leveraging their life for the sake of the plan, they got their own plan. And it doesn't even really hardly include God's plan. Are you leveraging life for the sake of God's plan? Because here's the thing. At the end of the age, when it's all over, the only thing that matters is God's plan. Retirement accounts don't matter. Vacation doesn't matter. How high up the corporate ladder you got doesn't matter. As you wrestle with that question in your heart as a believer, here's secondly, to you that if you're maybe here today, you're not a Christian yet. Are you a part of God's plan? You see, God's plan tells us that he loves you. And he loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for you. And all you must do today is by faith receive Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life. And guess what? By grace, you get in on the eternal plan of God. You say, that seems too easy. Listen, it's too easy because he's already paid for everything. It's grace. In just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing a song, a final song of worship. We have pastors that are here all along the front. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, but you're ready to receive Jesus, you're ready to receive God's gift and know that you're forgiven in this life and going to spend eternity with Him in heaven. When we stand to sing in just a moment, I want to invite you to come to one of these pastors here at the front. And here's all you got to say. Just come to one of us and say, I need Jesus. That's all you got to say. If you forget that, just come and stand here. We'll know why you're here. And we'll have somebody sit down with you and open a Bible and show you how you can begin a relationship with God. You just come. Just come. Secondly, there are a lot of here that are already Christians, and we're going to open these steps up again like an altar. Maybe God's put something on your heart. You want to make a fresh surrender of your life and just talk to God about what you've heard this morning. Or maybe you need to pray with one of our pastors. Maybe there's something in your job, your health, your family, and you'd love a pastor to pray over you and with you. We'd love to do that right now. In just a moment, when we stand, you just come. Some will come pray in the altar. Some will be prayed for here. Some are coming to know Christ. But as God speaks today, listen, this is your opportunity to respond. Lord, draw people to yourself. God, have your way in this service. We bless you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Let's stand together.